3: The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
4: Friday morning, the 27th of May. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM.
2: The rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And that's... A fact.
4: It is a fact that was spelt out this week in the Oxfam report called Profiting from Pain, which tells its own story.
2: A 55% increase during the two years of the pandemic in the assets of Ireland's billionaires. A 55% increase. I mean, it's absolutely extraordinary.
4: Those nine Irish billionaires did increase their wealth by 55%, or in real money, that means they made billion euro last year alone. Bringing their wealth now now up to a total of 51 billion. Happy days for those nine people who on average are now each worth more than 5.6 billion euro. That's over 5,600 million euro each. It's mind boggling. A little easier to comprehend if you write it down, maybe. So when each of these nine people look at their bank balances, they probably need a big screen and a pair of glasses. As the balance will say five, six, 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 six. That's five point six billion if you round it down not counting 66,666,666 euro on average. Meanwhile,
2: 691,000 people in Ireland are suffering from deprivation.
4: That's Richard Boyd Barrett speaking in uh, The doll this week about Ireland's super rich. Around the world, billionaire wealth is the equivalent of 13.9% of the world's GDP. Three times more than it was in 2000. So yes, the rich do get richer and somebody in the world becomes a billionaire every 30 hours. The world's 10 richest men own more wealth than 40% of all of the other people in this world, the big money is in food, energy and pharmaceuticals.
5: The five largest energy companies have made $2,600 in profits every single second. That means that in the time that we have this debate, those energy companies will make a profit of over €2 million.
4: BP, Shell, Total Energies, Exxon and Chevron and the world's 62 food billionaires will hope that business continues to go from strength
5: to to strength. The government refuses to tackle the profiteering of the energy companies, refuses to introduce what Oxfam call for, what we call for a windfall tax on the super war profiteering of the energy companies. We call for price controls, stop the energy rip-off the government rush to the defence of these poor, defenceless billionaires.
4: The people before profit TDs, Paul Murphy there and Richard Boyd Barrett before him raised the Oxfam report in the Dáil this week as the World Forum got underway in Davos. Let's speak to Richard Boyd Barrett now. And a very good morning to you, and thanks for joining us on the program this morning. I watering oh, wealth my in the world for the privileged few. Odd to contrast that this morning, isn't it, with the research from PTSB? Sixty-two percent of us cutting back on food.
2: Yeah, um, and I mean, I think what Davos highlights is that when people consider how they are being absolutely crucified by staggering increases in the cost of heating and energy, uh, the crisis of uh, rent and house prices that have reached absolutely unaffordable levels, childcare, uh, all of the inflationary increases that are in effect cutting people's wages, by a now projected 8% uh, as prices rise, there is a group of people who are benefiting from all of this. Uh, and those people met in Switzerland and meet every year in Switzerland where they hobnob with uh, the world's leaders uh, and lobby them, really, to, to keep the whole show on the road. It's uh, I mean, it was really quite obscene. Uh, and, of course, this year, yet again, we have very... A very high-powered delegation from uh, the Irish government, the Taoiseach, and the Taoiseach attending uh, this conference, um, where you know they are lobbied by these incredibly powerful corporate interests uh, to maintain a status quo which is seeing uh, ever-deepening inequality between a tiny group of extraordinarily wealthy people and corporations, and billions of people who are suffering incredible hardship uh, at the most basic level of housing and the cost of living and the ability to, you know, pay their bills, uh, to heat their homes. Uh, It's really, really quite shocking and extraordinary. And it's a story that just, you know, Mm. isn't... Not enough is said about it, about what this means and what it signifies about the system that we live under.
4: Mm. Well, there's undoubtedly a a question about the balance of wealth and the distribution of wealth in uh, the world if uh, the billionaires of the world own 13.9% of global GDP. Uh, But you don't object, do you, to the Irish government travelling to Davos? I
2: absolutely do. I see this is nothing but a junket, a massive junket, and worse... Uh, it's a place where the richest people in the world seek to influence uh, the policies uh, that govern us all. Um, and, you know, you can see the result of this, uh, and we're seeing it now at a global level, where the cost-of-living crisis that is affecting billions of people across the world uh, and crucifying and impoverishing people across the world uh there is another group of people who are benefiting from it and simultaneously influencing uh, the policies of governments right across the world. So yes, I absolutely object. Uh, And I mean, one of the most important things I want to say is uh, that I think it's time people protested against this deeply inequitous situation uh, and one of the things we've done over the last few weeks is established a cost of living coalition with pensioners groups and trade unions, and student unions uh, and advocacy groups and poverty groups. And we're holding a, a major national demonstration on the 18th of June uh, to demand serious action to address the cost of living crisis. And I would really urge people to get out on the streets. I think we just cannot put up. Mm with the sort of situation that ordinary people are facing at
4: the moment. Okay, but we do need to take our place in the world, don't we? And we need uh, to use whatever influence we have uh, to make the world a a better place and to uh, ask for help from the rest of the world to make Ireland a, a better place to live in. I mean, that's exactly what Vladimir Zelensky was doing when he addressed delegates at the World Economic Forum in Davos.
2: But, I mean... The, the the whole notion that the world's billionaires, and that's who you're talking about, investors, big corporations, that they are going to dictate uh, the policies that govern the rest of us, that somehow this is uh, a legitimate way to try and develop policy uh, to improve the lives of billions of people across the world, I think is a really quite perverse notion. Mm. And it's self-evident uh, what actually comes out of that. Uh, and when you look at what's happening in the world at the moment with that, you know, absolutely staggering increase in the cost of living, heating and energy mm-hmm. prices, the corporations represented at Davos are I've seen
4: record and they are, And they are represented and those profits are obscene, but they're not the only people who travel to Davos. Uh, the world's governments travel to Davos and that's why Vladimir Zelensky was appealing to them for help. Uh, but there's also other people there. Michal Martin uh, was uh, in Davos uh, uh, representing the country as our Taoiseach, uh, suggesting uh, that the Ukraine uh, should be allowed to join the European Union. Uh, he participated in a meeting uh, with some very influential people including the European Central Bank who are going to be very important in terms of people's livelihoods in this country because of the risk to mortgage interest rates and how payments, repayments could go through the roof and there was an opportunity for the Taoiseach to influence real change, was it not?
2: No, I think, to be honest, I mean, what you would have, what you get at Davos is things like the arms companies uh, who are lobbying to say well, the solution to the really horrendous situation we're seeing in Ukraine is to escalate military spending across the world? And there's been a very concerted push, uh, as a, you know, on the back of the Ukraine crisis, but also predating uh, the Ukrainian crisis, to increase military spending across the world. And you've seen the profits not just of the energy companies that we mentioned earlier on, but the, the profits of arms manufacturers across the globe have absolutely gone through the roof over the last uh, couple of years, and we have a very, very concerted push now to, to increase military spending in this country mm. uh, and right across Europe. And that is money that should be going to addressing the housing crisis, to you know funding our health services, funding education, improving the lives of ordinary people. But at Davos, what you have is lots of arms companies Or lobbying to say, no, we should uh, put more Mm. public money into the manufacture of arms and weapons. uh, And it's really difficult to see how that is contributing or will contribute anything to bringing peace in the world, in Ukraine or anywhere else.
4: Uh, I'm not sure if there's anybody listening to us who who would argue with you uh, about uh, the repulsive amount of wealth that some people have. Uh, when there's great poverty in in the world and uh, there's terrible situations that people find themselves in or if you look at uh, some of the sectors that have really been making money in the last few years it was a great pandemic for the super wealthy that's why pharmaceuticals have seen billionaires increase their wealth because of COVID-19 it's a a great uh, moment uh, in the world uh, because of inflation for people uh, who provide energy or food uh, and they're uh, increasing uh, their wealth uh, at the moment Uh, but there is an opportunity at the same time uh, to uh, get the ear of people if you're in the circle if you're outside of uh, the circle you get the deaf ear do you not?
2: uh, There is absolutely no reason to believe uh, that the the, the corporations that are represented and the investors that are represented at Davos are going to do anything to reduce their own profits. And if we are going to actually address the incredible, growing, staggering and obscene inequality Mm. uh, that we see across the world, and it is growing every year, that gap between the rich and poor is growing every single year. The idea that the the people who are the beneficiaries of that inequality are the people who are somehow going to address it, Mm. It's
4: just a ridiculous notion. But All these multinational super corporations uh, around the world, uh, I think there's uh, more or less uh, uh, a a presence in this country uh, as far as they're all concerned. And you could say that quite often um, that's because of delegations going to meetings like the ones in in Davos. Uh, The issue was raised yesterday by... Uh, your colleague Mick Barry in, in The Dole and he was asking Leo Bradker how much did it all cost uh, and, and the Taoiseach was saying, well, you know, there's lots of benefits to it, uh, like the Northern Ireland Protocol.
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, the government can throw in any sort of rationale or justification, but I think ordinary people can see themselves at what the net effect of, of government policies are in this country and globally. And they are an absolutely staggering increase in the cost of living, where the, the most basic things, like putting over a roof, a roof over your head that is affordable and secure, uh, that those things are not uh, being addressed by our government. And the, the ability to people just to, to find a place to live that is affordable and secure is getting more difficult. Things aren't improving, they're getting worse. Uh, the, the ability to, of people to heat their homes, yeah. to pay their bills—all these things are getting worse, while the profits of landlords, vulture funds, investors, energy companies, pharmaceutical companies, uh, all of the you know the food corporations and so on yeah. uh, are rising. And I think it is very difficult to really you know see it any other way than the political system being corrupted by the influence of corporations who are simply serving their own interests and trying to increase their profitability.
4: Okay, The Oxfam report is a global report uh, and uh, I think the Irish government would argue uh, that it is definitely a problem uh, with uh, the distribution of wealth in other parts of the world relative to the problems that we have here. Having said that, Jim Clarkin of Oxfam told us on the programme earlier this week uh, that they've looked at the nine billionaires that you were speaking about in the Doll and other very wealthy people in this country, uh, and that if you had a, a tax of one and a half percent on wealth on people who have more than four million euro, uh, that you'd end up with four billion euro.
2: Yeah, and uh, the Oxfam proposal for a wealth tax is very, very similar to the proposal that People Before Profit have pulled repeatedly in its uh, budget submissions over you know nearly a decade now to argue for a relatively modest wealth tax, uh, would raise billions in additional revenue. And you just think about that. A 1.5% tax on the wealth of people who have more than 4 million would raise 4 billion a year. That is uh, almost three times the amount of money that's been put into, for example, public housing by the government. Uh, So you, you can just imagine the difference that would make to the capacity of the state to address the housing crisis or to put the, the necessary new investment uh, to improve the situation in our health service where you know h- hundreds of thousands of people are on waiting lists for mm. basic medical procedures. Uh, you think about you know, the scandal at the moment of uh, the lack of supports and services for children with special needs. Uh, think about the difference that that kind of money would make Uh, to providing special needs uh, supports for our most vulnerable children. Uh, And so there are real costs to that inequality in wealth uh, and to the profiteering of these corporations. But a wealth tax would go some way to beginning to redistribute that wealth. And quite frankly, the the rich of this country and the world would barely even feel a tax of that sort. Uh, But it would make an enormous difference uh, to the lives of ordinary
4: people. Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you though for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. That's uh, People Before Profit TD, Richard Boyd Barrett uh, and we'll stay with this uh, and indeed uh, I think uh, we can stay uh, with People Before Profit for that matter because uh, as I mentioned, uh, this was raised in the doll uh, as an issue, not just in terms of whether it's appropriate to go to Davos, which is the argument Richard Boyd Barrett uh, was making there, but also the cost for the Irish delegation by People for Profit TD Mick Barry yesterday.
6: Afternoon, Tonston. So you're back from the luxury
4: ski resort. I'm sure you didn't do a Eugene Murphy and sleep in the back of a car. So I'm curious to know how much did the rooms cost in Davos this year and what
5: was the all-in price of the trip
4: Right, that's the question. Here's the partnership.
5: We um, spent uh, Monday and Tuesday in, in Davos uh, representing the country at the World Economic Forum. I uh, was happy to do so. I, I think Tishuk is there now. I think it's important that we are represented uh, and gives us an opportunity to tell our story, um, whether it's in relation to the protocol, whether it's in relation to um, what's happening in Northern Ireland, whether it's in relation to our own economy. Uh, and I think it is important uh, that we are represented. Uh, I flew commercial and stayed uh, in a four star hotel. And no doubt um, they charged for it, but it was nonetheless a four-star hotel and a commercial flight. Um, And there were some very interesting sessions.
4: Right, interesting sessions indeed. Uh, That's uh, the de Leo Radker, responding to Mick Barry in the Dáil yesterday. When Richard Boyd Barrett and Paul Murphy raised uh, these issues in the Dáil on Tuesday morning, they were responded to by Minister of State Sean Fleming.
7: In Ireland, the OECD, and I'm sure everybody has to give equal respect to the OECD's comment, um, said that Ireland mo- has the most progressive system of taxes transfers of any OECD member, and I would just want to put that on the record. They're not from the Government of Ireland or the Department of Finance figures, but I do understand the issues that you, you say, and people on approximately... Um, The 15,000 gross income pay less than 1% of tax, uh, effective rate of tax less than 1%, whereas rightly so, people on 100,000 pay 38.1%. And if you're up at 120,000 for those people, the effective tax rate is well over 40%. So that is progressive taxation. The higher your income, the higher your percentage of tax.
4: Okay, so between all of that, uh, I think we've heard the arguments for... There's a very, very real problem. I have to say, I don't know about you, but I have to say I really was sick in the stomach uh, this morning at uh, this research from PTSB. Uh, I know, uh, and we, we say it without even thinking it, it's become a, a turn of phrase, uh, eat or heat. Uh, but to think that, that 62% of people are cutting back on food spending because of the increase in the cost of living, there's a very real problem. Now, the arguments we've been hearing, I suppose, is that the government is saying it is doing everything it can and it will look at more ways of helping people if it's at all possible, but it won't be able to do everything because a lot of the things that are feeding into the cost of living are out of their hands, like the war or the energy prices or the mortgage interest rates when they start to hit uh, and so on. There's nothing the government can do about that. Uh, And even when they reduce excise on fuel like petrol and diesel, the prices continue to go up so that they're back to uh, square one and you're now paying two uh, two euro a litre of diesel and so on. Uh, On the other hand, you have this... Repulsive amount of wealth in the world and indeed in this country, billionaires and this research from Oxfam uh, that says tax people who a uh, uh, wealth tax on more than four million, which would give you four billion. Uh, the government says there's a progressive system of taxation in this country. Uh, the opposition, like people before profit, uh, say that they're supporting the wealthy and that they should be taxing the rich to uh, help those who are finding it hard to struggle. Uh, and maybe you'd like to share your opinion with us on this. We certainly would love to hear from you.
8: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM.
4: If you were listening to us uh, yesterday, you'd have heard Independent TD Peter Fitzpatrick, tell us uh, that he was going to raise the pay... Pal job losses in the doll yesterday. He was true to his word.
0: What, what what can you offer these 370 PayPal workers who are going to lose their jobs, and and, and these other two, two, 2,000 workers who are present still have the jobs? And uh, Taoiseach sorry Tanisha, I don't use the word trust uh, lightly. So uh, enough is enough, very Tanja. Very thank you. Thank you. There
4: were some very interesting responses from the Tanja Leo Ratger.
5: That is. Uh, with great regret that I heard um, on uh, on Monday that uh, PayPal was going to let uh, 307 staff go um, 135 from the Dublin office in Blanchetown, my own constituency uh, and 175 from their offices in, in Dundalk uh, I spoke to the company uh, earlier in the week um, they assured me that uh, they remain committed to their 2,000 other staff and will continue to employ uh, roughly 2,000 people uh, in Ireland um, but they've had to make this um, decision uh, as part of a general restructuring of the company um, and a reduction in the number of roles uh, not just in Ireland but, but it may be the case in some other countries too um, unfortunately the redundancies are uh, unavoidable um, and I do want to express my sympathy to those who are affected um, uh it must have come as a big shock to a lot of people to hear that um, that their role was, was being uh, made redundant.
4: A big shock indeed, and a lot of those workers are now worried that they're going to be the one for the axe.
5: I have received an assurance from the company that the redundancy package that they offer uh, will be a good one. Um, and uh, I don't know the details of that yet, but I will be following up on that matter Because I think it is important that if they are are letting people go, that they get a decent redundancy package uh, to help them uh, get on with their lives um, and, of course, uh, seek uh, um, employment elsewhere.
4: Workers losing their job will want to know how the government can help them.
5: In terms of what government can do, um, government is uh, obviously stepping in to ensure that workers know what their entitlements are uh, when it comes to social welfare and other matters, but also to know what their options are uh, when it comes to job search. Um, Most of these staff are very well-skilled. They will be able to find jobs quite quickly uh, in the same sector where there are lots of vacancies. But we need to help them uh, and connect them with those uh, vacancies. Uh, Also, they'll be given advice on what's available in terms of uh, a return to education, uh, a return to training the possibility of setting up their own business. So we will click in as a government uh, and make sure all that's done.
4: Now, the Tanisha said he heard about this on Monday. Workers heard about it on Tuesday. The company made a public announcement on Tuesday. There was some confusion. It was thought that the redundancies would be voluntary. The Tanisha said on Tuesday the redundancies would be voluntary. Jack Chambers said in the doll that the redundancies would be voluntary. Then PayPal told... LMFM on Wednesday that they won't be voluntary and that the redundancies will in fact be compulsory.
5: Uh, Just in terms of uh, um, the nature of the redundancies, I just want to clarify from uh, the letter that the company wrote to the department uh, and they say in that very clearly, and I quote, if redundancy cannot be avoided following collective consultation with impacted employees, uh, compulsory redundancies will be required. Uh, so that collective consultation is now occurring. It's required under law. Um, I hope as a consequence of that, uh, it'll be possible uh, to ensure that um, most of these redundancies are voluntary and uh, compulsory redundancies can be avoided.
4: All right. Well, that's very different uh, in terms of what PayPal said to the department, as Leo Radker uh, outlined it there in the Tonisha, hoping that the redundancies will be voluntary. But uh, uh, PayPal told LMFM they will be compulsory.
0: Tanja and I, I do agree with you, I think the most important thing here is communication. And I do welcome that PayPal is going to engage with the, with the, with the, with the workers today. Uh, Rumours don't help. Also, like, uh, these jobs being transferred to, uh, to India doesn't help at all, Tarnasher. And uh, I'm sure that more than, more than most people, you know the amount of money that the, that the government and the ID invest into in PayPal coming here at the moment. So, so, and also, tonage the, the two thousand workers that remain working in paypal it 's very important that they 're looked after as well because uh, they 're looking for some kind of security there as well, but losing losing. 438 jobs in in a short period of time, of 13 months, Tarnaghy. It doesn't seem realistic. So Tarnaghy, I I, I I would be asking you, Tarnaghy, on behalf of the of the workers at Paypal, for you and your and, and your department to to engage and see what kind of commitment they can get to, to try to try to save as many of these jobs as they can, and maybe relocate these jobs. And also importantly, is that can 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 Paypal communicate to the remaining 2,000 workers what their future plans going forward. Like for a company that, that torn revenue of £25 billion last year and, and, and the amount of people that do trust PayPal. So Tony, if you, a lot you. of what to do in the next couple, couple of weeks, I just would ask you, would you please communicate you with you, the TDs in the area and keep respond. them all updated.
4: All right, and Tony Leo Bradker said that he will most certainly be keeping a, an eye on what's happening in PayPal. You
5: can be uh, assured that I'll continue to engage on this matter. Um, PayPal has uh, given us the commitment that they will be retaining uh, 2,000 staff in Ireland, which is very significant, um, and that they will put put in place a good redundancy package uh, for those staff who are being let go. And government will uh, provide uh, those staff being let go uh, with whatever uh, support we can in relation to education, training, other employment options, welfare, etc.,
4: Okay, that's uh, Leo Radker. I'm not. I'm not sure uh, that we learned much from that uh, doll debate yesterday. But that confusion continues about whether people will have to uh, leave their job, be made redundant. Uh, against their will, if you like, compulsory redundancies rather than them volunteering for it. Uh, that remains uh, an issue of concern, I'm sure, for the PayPal employees. Uh, and uh, hopefully they'll get clarity on that from the company shortly. Pat and Tully Allen, uh, one of uh, the people texting us today, uh, just a couple of uh, messages in so far. Pat says, it's as simple as this. The rich are the capitalists. They are the people who are the employers. They can move their investment anywhere anywhere. In the world, then we will have no jobs. Thanks uh, for that, Pat. Uh- We all hope that that's not the case uh, with uh, the PayPal workers. uh, And uh, I think maybe it's one of the reasons why the billionaires get richer. Uh, JP McManus says a a lot of rich people give their money away uh, to good causes. Uh, That's a a valid point, I I think, uh, when you look at uh, the likes of Bill Gates, for example, uh, who does a a lot of good work. Uh, But uh, thanks uh, for sharing that with us, uh, JP McManus, this morning as well.
8: Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM.
4: The Irish Farmers Journal has been speaking to over 1,200 farmers about fertilisers, silage and cash flow for this year. The results of the survey are very interesting and tie in, I, I think, with the increase in the cost of living concerns that people have. Pat O'Toole is political correspondent for the Irish Farmers Journal and a very good morning to you, Pat and thanks for joining us. Tell us a, a little bit about the results of your survey, if you would please.
7: Sure, Michael. Uh, Well, I suppose the most stark uh, figure that's come out of it is half of Irish farmers plan to cut their stock numbers this year uh, because of the availability and cost of feed, fertiliser and fuel, um, the main inputs uh, in in our grass-based production systems. The big crooks, of course, will come next winter. Um, It's not too hard to graze animals through the summer, but when you have to house and you have to have uh, bedding and you have to have storage and you have to have feed for the winter uh, that's that's when things really get tight so um, the lower income sectors, the dry stock sectors, beef and sheep uh, are planning to cut most deeply. <clears throat> 43% of beef farmers say they hold stock but over uh, just under half, uh, 48% uh, say they're going, they're going to cut sorry 57% say they're going to cut and um, of those uh, even more significantly um 15% of those are, say they're going to cut by more than 30%. Um, and uh, 4 in 10 are going to cut by uh, over 10%, between mm-hmm. 10 and 20. So,
4: Ex- Explain that to me if you, in terms of, of what it's going to mean for farmers and if their farms will continue to be viable because I'd, uh, I've thought uh, that it was a basic principle the more you produce, the more you make type of thing.
7: If you're losing money, uh, if the cost of production don't cover uh, or if if you're not covering the cost mm. of production with your sale price the more you produce the more you lose yeah. so farmers are fearing at the moment they're not losing money because like I say it's the cheap time of the year they're out relatively speaking uh, animals are out on grass and they're getting the vast majority of their diet from, from grass um, but the crooks will come next winter and it, the real fear is that beef in particular won't wash its face. We're already there with pigs and in the paper this week mm. we've a two-page interview with Michael Monigal, the pig producer in Tipperary, who talks about the, the fact that he's losing... Um, uh, uh, the average pig farmer is losing about 80,000 euros a month mm. at the moment, mm. and that they're facing annihilation. They're losing over 65 euros uh, on every pig they produce. So this is the problem that happens. The difference between pig farmers and beef and sheep and, and dairy farmers is that uh, a very high proportion of the cost of pig production is is animal feed, it's ration, uh, whereas because they're grass-based, our beef and sheep and dairy are more competitive. Uh, but having said that, a lot of farmers are going to prune their numbers, they're going to uh, batten down the hatches and see how we get through the next 12 months because mm. no one will really knows losses, keep
4: Keep losses to a minimum, is it, to see if they can get through it uh, and then exactly. try and boun- bounce back?
7: Yeah, to, to, to just, just uh, wind things down a little um, and... Uh, be prudent um, and remove anything that's less productive um, and make sure that they're as lean and mean as they can be mm. to get through what is going to be you know, a very difficult 12 months. We don't really know what the long-term prognosis is because there's no indication as yet that... There's going to be any resolution to the conflict in Ukraine, Russia's Mm -hmm. invasion, and the sanctions which have been imposed on Russia. So it looks like we're in for a prolonged period of high food prices, high feed prices, high fertilizer prices, and high fuel prices.
4: It's mad. I mean, the uh, crisis in pig farming is off the wall, as you've just uh, outlined, uh, but it sounds, from what you're saying, that beef uh, and sheep are going to follow.
2: Yeah,
7: and and the other sector which maybe is the hidden and and it's the most disgraceful in many ways because our fruit and vegetable sector, which is very near your door, um, you know, a significant amount of fruit and vegetables are produced in the hinterland of Dublin, and um, the uh, these farmers are the most dependent on the Irish retail sector, and they've been looking for double-digit increases in their uh, prices from retailers and it's direct. Uh, interaction between the retailer and the farmer because of the scale the vegetable producers are mainly at, mm. and uh, they're not getting those, and they're they're the, as vulnerable as the pig sector at the moment, and that just shows how vulnerable uh, farmers who are utterly dependent on the Irish retailer are. Ninety percent of our food is exported, and it is. Deeply concerning that you're you're safer if you're dealing with multinationals across the planet than you are dealing with the Irish retailers.
4: Right, and I take it fertilizer comes into that scenario, and a lot of uh, the fertilizer we get in this country comes from Ukraine. Uh, so that's dried up. It's something else. Uh, the price has gone through the roof, and there's a very shocking statistic. I, I, I it seems to me uh, shocking to say that seventy eight. Percent of farmers are going to uh, cut back on using fertilizer.
7: Yeah. Um, now, ironically, in the long term, this may not be the worst thing of all uh, because there uh, we have a plan for Europe called the Farm to Fork, where there's it's envisaged that we reduce fertilizer usage by twenty percent anyway, but two more targeted reduce of fertilizer, uh, greater efficiencies. Um, there's a real challenge because of the uh, the climate. Uh, footprint of of food production uh, globally and in Ireland. Um, so, reduction in fertiliser usage is something that will probably need to happen over time anyway. And uh, this this may fall in line. Fertiliser may have been too cheap. It uh, nitrogen, which is the dominant fertiliser to grow grass, uh, it. It comes uh, essentially uh, from fossil fuels and it's linked very closely to gas prices, which went up by 600% last year. So fertilizer trebled in price Mm. in the last 12 months. But um, it may have been too cheap. You would say that it's definitely too dear now. But hopefully in time we will have a happy medium. Uh, but farmers are going to have to be more prudent in how they use the fertiliser and more efficient in how they use the grass that they grow the fertiliser from. Uh, for tillage farmers and for vegetable producers, there's less leeway. If you don't uh, feed the crop, the crop won't grow um, at all. Uh, so they have to spend the money and hope that they recoup it from the retailer or the processor that they're dealing with.
4: Okay, hard times. uh, More in the Farmers' Journal. Thanks for joining us uh, this morning, Pat. Pat O'Toole is uh, the political correspondent uh, for the Irish Farmers' Journal.
8: Michael Reed on LMFM.
4: Now, if you've uh, been trying to look at uh, the maps on uh, the EPA website uh, you may have reached the message that I'm looking at now due to a high number of visitors today the new radon map may not load for you, if so please try again later, it in itself tells the amount of concern that there is about radon since uh, this latest report from the Environmental Protection Agency let's speak to Alison Dowdall who's a scientist with to the EPA. And a very good morning to you, Alison, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh this is a, an update, uh the first one in twenty years, isn't it, on the levels of radon in
9: the country. That's right. Uh good morning Michael and thanks for having me. So yeah, we we've had a radon map um on our website uh since twenty years ago and it's always been, you know, a really popular uh way for people to check their radon risk. Um we updated the maps um and we did launch them yesterday and as you say we've been overwhelmed um with the response from um the public and employers. We've had you know we've just been inundated with queries. So, you know, it's great to see that people are aware of radon gas and they're interested, you know, to find out about their risk. So um maybe for any of your listeners who don't know about radon, um it is a radioactive gas, um so it can get into your home or your workplace from the ground. Um it has no colour, no smell or no taste, so there's no way that we, we you know, our physical senses won't detect it in our homes. And um, every year in Ireland, it does cause about 350 cases of lung cancer, so mm. the second cause of lung cancer after smoking. Um, and I suppose then because it doesn't have that colour, taste or smell, the risk map is a way for people to look and see the risk in their area Um So, you know, we are working really hard to get them back up and running. Um, And the the other thing just to say as well, as well as um, uh, homeowners, you know, and householders looking to test for radon, um, employers in high-risk areas are also, they have a legal obligation to make sure that their workplaces are safe from radon and that their employees are safe. So for employers in a high-risk area, they have to, they're legally required to test Mm. and to fix any high radon levels that
4: they find. Right, uh, and that's only in the high-risk areas, is it?
9: For the employers, it's yeah. only in the high-risk right. areas.
4: And, and you yeah. know that by looking at the map and they're highlighted in red and there's particular problems, I think, in the southwest of the country but that shouldn't lead to complacency because there's pockets of the country that are at high risk here and that applies to this part of the world. I think there's high levels of radon in Omeath, for example.
9: Yeah, so um the, the new map it does have much better resolution. So as you say it does show up those pockets, those little small areas in kind of in much more detail. Um parts of County Loud, yeah, for sure, uh along the Cooley Peninsula, like the you know, for example, um around Carlingford, we've come across that would be say the highest the place where, the place where we find the highest levels in the county. So yeah, Carlingford, even Dundalk around R D and, and uh, Clare Head, term effect and yeah. all those kinds of areas. Um, do you know we've known for many years that they are high risk areas, but the map does give a, a much better picture yeah. of the risk. And there's no county actually in Ireland. That doesn't have some high risk area
4: and the problem is you don't know you're living with radon unless you test for it it's naturally occurring it's odorless uh, uh, and uh, there's no way uh, of knowing as i say unless you test for it and you're probably not going to do that uh, unless you look at the map and become concerned i take it
9: that's right um it's kind of you know it's it's a way for to communicate the risk and to show people and um, the areas that are at risk and um, you know, the test is, is really straightforward and mm. um, it costs about 50 euros and there are five companies on our website who provide the test. So um, you can take a look on radon.ie um, and you'll find the details of the companies there. Uh, the test is all done by post. So two small, once you order the detectors, two, they'll be put in the post to you. You put them in your home for three months. So in the parts of your home, where you spend most of your time, so a living room or and your main bedroom. So you're trying to get a picture of the amount of radon that you're being exposed to as you live in your home, you know, and use it on a, a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Um, and then you just post them back to the testing company. They'll do the analysis then and, and send you out a test report. So you know, it is pretty straightforward to do. Mm. Um, and as I say, it costs about
4: €50. Euros. OK, uh, I see a, a, an interesting suggestion coming from uh, the Department uh, for the Environment. The Irish Times is reporting today that they're about uh, to publish their annual National Radon Control Strategy Report uh, and that in that uh, it, it could propose that uh, radon would be tested uh, and uh, that uh, it would be dealt with uh, uh, if houses are to be sold.
9: Yeah, um, the, the questions um, about, you know, being included when houses um, are being sold, that's in place in England. So it is a requirement there. Um, at the moment in Ireland, there are actually three questions on radon included um, in the conveyancing process. So, you know, if you're buying a house, you can get your solicitor to ask, um, has the house been radon, tested for radon? Uh, if so, what was the result? And if the result was high, um, has anything been done to reduce the level? So it's more about passing on the information to the new you know to the new homeowner. Mm. Um, it's not a legal requirement though, just you know, to, to say that to you. It's as I say, it's more about the exchange of the information so the you know, the purchaser would be aware.
4: Mm, Yeah well I I think if you can ask people will ask given uh, the level of interest uh, that there is in this or seems to be in this given (laughs) it's been crashing your website uh, I take it uh, that over the course of uh, the next week or so people will be able to access those maps and uh, I'm sure uh, they'd be well advised uh, to take a look to see what the risk is to them if there is a a great risk or otherwise is this uh, particularly uh, unique to this country?
9: Um, It is. um, Ireland has one of the the highest levels of radon uh, compared with other uh, European countries. Um, So, for example, our average is um, 77. So radon is measured in units called Bacalel. So our average would be 77. But uh, just again, to compare it to the UK, their average is 20. So, you know, we Mm. do have four times the you know the average that they have and um, so yeah you know unfortunately we do have more of a problem than many other european countries
4: for right. sure. do we know why
9: uh mainly to do with our geology so you know it's coming from the, the rocks and soils and um, and even say say from some it could, could be from a granite rock but even then in saying that and um, in limestone areas because they're porous they're actually letting it through into the home so there's no one particular geology you know that's you could say is the cause. Sometimes it's just that one is actually letting it pass through and get into our buildings. So, uh, yeah, but it, it really is all to do with the geology in Ireland.
4: Okay, interesting stuff. Thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning, Alison. Alison Dowdall, scientist with uh, the EPA, that's uh, the Environmental Protection Agency. Now, uh, some comments uh, coming to us, uh, somebody in touch uh, about uh, facial. Uh, recognition technology saying if you're not a, a criminal and if you've nothing to hide uh, then facial recognition technology should not be an issue. Why is it a, a problem? All TDs and professionals should accept this and have it implemented as soon as possible. If you're not willing to do the time then don't commit the crime. Uh, another text uh, from uh, somebody who says uh, they want the a and in Our ladies Hospital in Navin to stay open uh, and uh, you can say that that 10,000 people want that for that matter, given the amount of people who took to the streets last time. That came to us from Rose. Thanks uh, for your text, Rose. David in Dublin said, we don't know how lucky we are to be living in a great and mostly safe country. That was uh, following on from uh, the shootings in Texas. David uh, in touch with us yesterday about that. Thank you indeed for your message to the programme. Now, as you've been hearing on LMFM's news uh, this morning, the best friend of a Lithuanian woman, Gidra Ragakaichi, who is suspected of being murdered after vanishing from the Laytown area almost four years ago, has been speaking about her friend in an interview with Owen Murphy for LMFM. Gilv, beg your pardon, Gidvila Himna, first appeal for information about the 29-year-old's disappearance.
10: I I still want to ask the people to look for her, and I still want to ask the police and everyone around to look for her because if I would be disappeared, I would like someone would do something like that for me. So that's what I think. I still think doesn't, I know I know there's so many people is disappearing around, you know, I just we can't stop looking for the people, we can't stop like like we are we are the human being we're I mean, supposed to be looking after, and I don't understand like how come the people can disappear without like um without nothing that's the thing
3: well it's actually physically looking for her there are obviously some people who would know what happened to her what would you say to them
10: i would like i just ask to speak out it's already done just let let us find her body let us uh, bury her as a person and let us to find the place and a grave we can bring the flowers on that's the only thing you can't do anything you can't you can't return anything just um just let us know where she is and that we can do something for her that's only what we want you know that's only what we want because we know we will never find her in, anymore and we know she's not alive we know that. Everybody knows. You just want to find a peace. And uh just a peace. You just want the peace.
3: What about br- uh, bringing the people responsible for her death uh, to justice? Is that important?
10: Yeah, it is important. And the thing is, I even started, I don't know, it's like, maybe it sounds uh, really funny, but because of her, she was my best friend. And uh, because of her, I started... Um, my second degree in the university in UK UK uh, for criminology. It's like something, I, I not only for her, but I just like, I started criminology and I finished second, second year now, like I still have uh, London Metropolitan University. But that's the thing, I just want to find the justice. I just want to... Uh, I don't. I, I don't want uh, people to be like. Uh, I just want to find justice. You know, the thing is, uh, this We la- live only once, and we every every person decide what he is worth for his life. So that's the thing. I just want the justice for this life. So the thing is, the uh, for the people of for Gadre, and for for the rest of us. Uh, I just want justice. I understand how the people feel because I felt I never imagined before before I lost my friend, so I, now I realize how hard is it, especially if i I know she's my friend, but I can't imagine her father and the family life They have no grave, nothing she even put the um uh flower or the uh, candle on, you know. And when you don't have the body, it's still always, there is like some little, you always always imagine like maybe she's alive. There is always a hope. That's the thing.
3: What about her family? Um, does she have parents and brothers or sisters back in Lithuania?
10: Yeah, she has two sisters. Uh, one is in Italy and one is in Cyprus. They're not in, in Lithuania now, but they're both as well. They also have a um Hope we both we all have hope. Even the father have a hope. In reality, we understand. We all understand that she is not alive. But always, like we are in the person, like there is always hope. There is nobody, you know. So you you can't be hundred percent sure. But the thing is, we are. We think so. Yeah, we think so. She we... She's murdered.
4: Gidvilla Himna speaking about her good friend, who she assumes is now deceased, Gidra Ragakaita, who was last seen in Laytown four years ago. Gidvilla was speaking to Owen Murphy for us.
8: Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. On LMFM.
4: All right, let's uh, talk uh, about housing uh, again with uh, Father Peter McVary who works uh, with uh, the homeless. Good morning to you, Peter, and thank you indeed uh, for joining morning, us Michael. on uh, the programme uh, this morning. I'm sure uh, you would have been happy to see the recommendation this week uh, from the Architects Committee on Urban Regeneration uh, that there would be a vacant property tax Uh, That's the first part of uh, the story. The second part of the story, I I suppose, is how optimistic are you that that recommendation will be taken on board by government?
6: Well, first, I I welcome it. We have to see what's going to the details. The details won't be available until the budget, but we have to, uh, I, I certainly welcome it. I think at the moment we have to look at everything, every possible avenue to try and improve the uh, the housing the housing stock, mm. so certainly every everybody knows every town you go into every city, there are lots and lots of vacant properties lying derelict, uh, and that's absolutely absurd. And we're not just talking about uh, residential properties, houses boarded up. Mm. Uh, we, we're talking also about commercial properties, old derelict warehouses or unused banks or or, or that they are also I. I launched a project for a number of years ago for uh, UCD School of Architecture. The students there had converted an old warehouse that had been dying di- derelict for years into four beautiful family apartments. Right. So we need to look at whatever Hmm. is lying idle.
4: Let's
6: invest and get those back into use, and I fully
4: support that. Okay, well, I I was going to say you're not going to get a a quick solution uh, through derelict buildings, uh, but maybe that point has uh, proved me wrong. uh, No, there's no quick solution. The only solution,
6: the only solution to our housing crisis is for the local authorities to build social and affordable housing okay, to buy them from the private sector not lease yeah. them uh, to build them but that's going to take years so now we have to look in the interim mm. what can we do to alleviate the problem
4: Alright, we and and come back to that in a, a moment uh, because uh, there's uh, interesting research uh, from the SRI which really highlights uh, the point how uh, the state stopped building houses. We'll uh, come back to that in a moment but talk about the vacant units uh, for a, a minute uh, more if you wouldn't mind Peter, yeah. uh, because They say there's 137,000 vacant units in the state. This is according to that uh, committee report. Uh, And I suppose, what, we have about 10,000 people on the housing list. Uh, Do you think that you get 10,000 housing units out of the 137,000 units? Uh, And I think that was the point I was going to make about the derelict ones. Uh, Could you get 10,000 units that could be used uh, in six months, let's say?
6: Yeah, the reality is we just don't know how many derelict units are, available, are, are there. There was 186,000 identified in the last census five years ago, but many of those will have been brought back into use. Some of them will be tied up in legal arguments about who owns them. Some of them were involved. Some of them were tied up in the Fair Deal nursing home scheme. We just don't know how many uh, vacant units are, are available to be uh, to be renovated. They've tried the repair and lease scheme where they gave a grant to owners to bring those vacant units back into, into use, but it was very, very poorly uh, taken up. There's only about 250 units that have actually been brought back into use through the repair and lease scheme. Uh, over the last four or five years. Mm. But there's certainly a substantial number of empty properties there. Everybody who has eyes to see can see them, no Mm. matter what part of the country you're living in. And uh, there is no reason, it's it's scandalous, to have them lying empty in the middle of a housing crisis. Mm.
4: And Meanwhile, you can't find anywhere to rent if you do. The cost is just downright ludicrous uh, and uh, it's uh, pretty much the same uh, for people who are looking to buy property for the first time.
6: There's solutions to those as well. Yeah. <laughs> mm. the, you know, house prices are going up, but you could reduce the cost of housing by at least 30% overnight if you implemented the Kenny report. Hmm. I don't want to go into the details, but the Kenny report uh, uh, recommended controlling the price of land because the cost of land is often 30 or more percent of the cost of the house that's built on the land. Did
4: you say you could do that overnight? Because, correct me if I'm wrong, that report goes back to 1972, does it? Yeah, almost 40 years ago. (laughs) 74, I think. Oh, 74. Almost 50 years ago. (laughs) Forgive me for laughing, but, you know, if it could be done overnight and here we are 40 years later, it is kind of laughable, isn't
2: it? We had the
6: absurd situation where a a company bought a piece of land, uh, paid paid the standard price for it, got planning permission to build on it, didn't build, but then resold it on at 10 times what they had paid for it, because now it had planning permission. And that meant that the houses that were going to be built on that land eventually would cost far, far more than
4: they would have cost originally. Absurd, absurd. I was uh, reading in one of the papers uh, uh, about uh, the rental market uh, and I saw a a phrase that I hadn't seen before called bricks to benefits. Uh, And this is uh, that the state has stopped using bricks and mortar in building houses and has switched to giving people benefits so that they take welfare payments and use that to pay their rent. Uh, And uh, apparently, this is according to the uh, Sarai report that I mentioned earlier, uh, there's 293,673 households receiving supports of one sort. That's the benefits. Uh, And that compares to 134,973 in 1994. So uh, you're talking less than 150,000 in 1994 compared to nearly 300,000 today. Uh, So the idea of building has obviously stopped and there's far more people renting and they need help with that, uh, the the, the cost of renting. Nearly half of the people who are are renting get some sort of uh, support from the state.
6: Yeah, that's the underlying cause of this whole housing crisis. Governments over the last 15 years simply stopped building social housing and pushed everybody into the private sector. You know, in 1975, this country built 8,500 council houses. In 1985, it built 6,900 council houses. And in 2015, this country built 75 council houses.
4: We didn't have two pennies to rub together in
6: 1985. No, we had a recession in the 80s. Mm. (laughs) But we still built council houses. We stopped building council houses, pushed everybody into the private rented Mm. sector. And that is costing now the taxpayer 1 million euros per day.
4: And we had a population decline in 1985 because the young people had to go away to get work.
6: Yeah, it was that ideology that the private sector should provide, that the public sector is uh, should be run down, and the private sector should uh, p- meet all our needs. It's that ideology that has persisted for the last 15 years. It's, we're only beginning to come out of it now, uh, but that is the fundamental cause of the uh, the crisis that we're in. We've got to go back to building, building social and affordable housing. That's the only, only solution.
4: Mm, and Uh, there is merit is there not uh, 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 in a vacant property tax I'm not sure what the argument against it is but there is resistance obviously from government to introducing one but there is merit in it in that uh, it could encourage people to put that property on uh, the market uh, or if they didn't and they were taxed on their property that property could go into building houses.
6: Absolutely yeah I mean there's there's that there, there's other ish, there's other uh, options as well airbnbs you know there was 850 private uh, rental properties advertised last month there are thousands of airbnb properties advertised most of them do not meet the uh, the requirements the government requirements some of them are, they all require to be regulated mm. some of them require planning permission mm. and they are operating fact- effectively illegally mm. Now the local authorities say they don't have the resources to follow up on all these Airbnbs my proposal would, you make it illegal to advertise unless you have the regular uh, the, the requisite uh, regulatory and planning permissions. And then you make it mm. illegal for the Airbnb platforms to accept the... Uh, well,
4: but it is. I, I mean, it is illegal to advertise because if, if it's illegal to uh, rent out the property under Airbnb because you don't have uh, the planning permission, it has to be illegal to advertise it. I, I mean, it's
6: no, a bit... Nobody's it, monitoring that. But that's the, the it, point need it, planning it, permission if you're going to add, mm, if you're going to let out yeah. your property for more than 90 days in a year yeah. you need planning permission but it, isn't who's it counting? just who's counting the number of days in a year but, of property but, but, the it, local authorities having the resources to do that
4: well but all they i have to do is to look at these at the websites uh, one website in particular uh, it's not that difficult and wouldn't take that much resource uh, but it's a bit like advertising a shabane or a brothel or something like that if they're illegal you can't advertise that they're there for uh, servicing people
6: Yeah. See, I think what we need in the interim while we're building a social affordable housing is a whole range of of different measures. We need modular units. We can build a modular unit in 12 weeks (laughs) Mm. and and put it up. We need timber-based, timber-framed housing uh, because we have lots of timber here. Uh, There's lots of small little uh, things we could do that would make a difference in the short term. It's not going to solve the problem, but it would make a difference. Rental. My proposal for rental is we reduce rents across the board by 25%, and we reduce the tax that landlords pay on their rental income by 50%. Mm. Now, that's a win for tenants. It's a win for landlords the reason it's not going to happen is the big international investment funds own thousands of apartments Mm. and they're renting them out at the top rate and they don't pay any income tax on the rental income. Hmm. They will go screaming blue murder and go all the way to the Supreme Court uh, to complain. Well, my attitude, let them. Yeah. <laughs> let them.
4: Yeah. Well, I was talking to somebody yesterday who was telling me they uh, were renting a, a property for 2200 a, a month. Uh, and then they bought a house and the mortgage repayments are 1400 a month.
6: Yeah, I know. It's, 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 it's totally, totally dysfunctional. And it's going to get worse. Hmm. This is going to get worse. As house prices go up, more and more landlords are going to feel the, uh, the desire to sell. You know, if you have a house worth €360,000 and you're renting it out for 2000 a month, yeah. 1000 going back to the tax man, It'll take you 30 years to get 360000 into your bank account, at which stage you're probably going to be in your 70s or 80s. If you sell that house today, you can have 360000 into your bank account within months or even weeks when you're in your 30s, 40s or 50s yeah. when the money can be far more useful. As house prices continue to rise, we're going to see more and more landlords exiting the rental market.
4: OK, we'll leave it there on that grim note. Uh, thank you indeed, though, for joining us as always. That's Father Peter McVerry. Michael,
8: Michael Reed on LMFM. It might be
4: a, a silly question, but uh, I imagine, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, uh, that if you pour a hot cup of tea over yourself, uh, that you'll assume you'll burn yourself. Um, I'd imagine that's the case. Uh, if it's not, it's quite possibly why you or other people might sue the restaurant if you bought the tea in the restaurant or if you were running in a, a playground and fell over uh, that you'd sue the councillor, whoever uh, owns uh, the playground uh, for the injury incurred, as uh, the case may be, this may change. Let's speak to Peter Boland, who's uh, the director of the Alliance for Insurance Reform. A very good morning to you, Peter, and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. The Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, has brought proposals uh, to government, which is approving amendments to the Occupier's Liability Act 1995, which may tackle this issue.
1: Good morning, Michael, and we'd hope so. Yes, um, we're a complete outlier in terms of the duty of care that is is applied to policyholders in this country. Um, It just doesn't happen at this level anywhere else in Europe, uh, and it has really hampered us in trying to get insurance reforms through in a way that will get the cost of insurance down to affordable levels. Um, We're looking, just as an aside, uh, this year at the average increase in liability premiums of 16%. So despite all the work that's been done in this area, uh, liability insurance premiums continue to rise. And the duty of care has been a glaring uh, example of why. So you've outlined a couple of scenarios there, uh, which just wouldn't be considered in other countries. And there are plenty of them, uh, some of them being reported in the, the papers over the last few days, where there's an assumption that because an accident happens that somebody must pay. Uh, And typically what happens is that the duty of care in a situation like that is imposed on the nearest person or organisation that has an insurance policy. Um, And that's not just sustainable. This has evolved over the last 20 years or so. Uh, And as a nation, as an economy, as a society, we just can't afford it anymore.
4: Hmm. And I've thought that uh, it's a question of what I'd call basic COP
1: Yeah, basic cop isn't built into the circumstances at the moment. Essentially what we've done in our interpretation of the existing law over the last 20 years is infantilise adults. So the assumption is that they know nothing and can't help themselves and so they must be cared for in an absolute sense Mm. uh, by the occupiers of buildings or the organisers of events and that they have no responsibility. Now, if you look at the existing legislation it's actually, to a lay person like myself, it reads fairly well. Um, but it's, it's interpretation in the courts over the years which has completely undermined it. Um, and so that's why there is a need for a revamp to the legislation to make it clear to judges uh, that they have to take account of personal responsibility mm. as well uh, when they're making decisions on personal injury claims. Yeah,
4: and that personal responsibility or basic COP also leads to other problems. Uh, because uh, if uh, you can sue because you've spilt tea on yourself and burnt yourself, you might as well have a sign over the coffee shop saying, come in and sue me, I have public liability insurance.
1: Yeah, precisely. So it's a double-edged sword mm. in, in that perspective. And of course, one, one of the big issues from a policyholder point of view is that as soon as a claim is lodged, that goes against their insurance policy. So... As long as that claim is outstanding they will pay higher premiums regardless of the outcome. So I've seen a few cases, and I'm not going to cite individual cases uh, right now, Um, but I have seen a few cases recently where multiple businesses or voluntary organisations were sued uh, and ultimately the case was dismissed um, but costs were not awarded. So despite them doing nothing wrong, uh, they now have to pay legal fees yes. uh, associated with a circuit court or mm. high court case, and, that, and that's,
4: not, uh, that's not small money. That's very expensive, isn't it?
1: That's not small money, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And then yeah. on top of that, for the five years or so since the incident was reported, they've had higher insurance premiums. Uh, and, and uh, I've said already, that kind of setup is just not sustainable. Mm. We have to have a balanced system which works for all.
4: Yeah. So you have to pay for the privilege of defending yourself after doing nothing wrong.
1: That, that's precisely it, and and too often judges, for whatever reason, uh, decide that they won't make a decision on costs. Legislation mm. says that uh, costs follow the event, uh, and in other words, if you lose a, a personal injuries claim, you should be paying the costs. But too often we see circumstances where that doesn't happen, with no logic or reasoning given mm. uh, or reported, and and that's a, an issue of major concern. So What the Minister is proposing looks, from our perspective, to be balanced, to be fair, to be practical, to be proportionate. Um, But all it does is try to bring us uh, up to the level of other nations and that's not just a, a justice issue and clearly it's a, an issue of justice and fairness um, but it's also a competitive issue as well. Mm. Like we, we all are well aware of the costs in the hospitality industry uh, at the moment but no other country has those kind of impositions on them uh, and, and so our hospitality industry are paying way over the odds in insurance costs and not just hospitality, we've had a number of examples recently of member organisations of the Alliance who've had European meetings and their European counterparts are just unbelieving or disbelieving mm. uh, when, it, when they say that insurance is an existential issue for us. And in some cases just laugh at the thought that your premium could put you out of business.
4: Alright, you were in front of uh, the Oireachtas uh, committee uh, on enterprise trade and employment on Wednesday. And you were making a lot of suggestions as to how to bring down the cost of insurance, as you always do. Were you concerned, though, by the Insurance Ireland uh, group uh, who said we can expect costs to go up because of uh, the increase in the cost of living?
1: Look, I give you a, a, an example of why we have serious concerns about that kind of uh, assertion um, with the reforms that have already gone through the new judicial guidelines on awards uh, the establishment, of the insurance fraud coordination office, the enactment and commencement of the Perjury Act the risk associated with every policy in this country has reduced and that's reflected in the motor sector so private motor premiums uh, since the new judicial guidelines came in in April of last year are down by 9 This year that's accelerated uh, to 12%. So every one of your listeners with their private motor insurance, when they renew next, would be entitled to expect a reduction in around the 10% at least. And Mm -hmm. that's just staying with the same insurer that's not uh, Mm -hmm. looking Mm -hmm. to move around. and. the, the circumstances are exactly the same in liability, except that the premiums are going up by an average of 16%. And the only difference as far as we can see, and we haven't been contradicted on this yet, is the lack of competition on the liability side. There's just not enough competition. And essentially, Insurance Ireland's job is to defend their members, and they do that very well, um, and that's fair enough. But it is becoming indefensible because all of these reforms have costs associated with them they're they're not passing on those savings uh, and if they're not passing on those savings then they're pocketing them
4: OK, we'll leave it on that note and let uh, them respond to that if uh, they wish. But thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme uh, this morning. Peter Boland, uh, Director of uh, the Alliance for Insurance Reform.
8: Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Yeah,
4: it, it seems certain, I think, uh, that uh, Graeme D- Dwyer will be able to take uh, a case uh, to the Court of Appeal. He'll hope to be able to overturn his life sentence for the murder of of Elaine O'Hara in 2012. It was a very gruesome murder at that. Paul Williams is a journalist with the Irish Independent and has been following this story throughout. A very good morning to you, Paul, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. It seems certain, does it not, that an appeal will be made. Uh, The outcome of that appeal uh, is far from certain, though.
11: Good morning, Michael. You're absolutely right. You summed it up there. The, an appeal is absolutely inevitable now, but uh, the release of Graham Dwyer back into the into society as an ordinary uh, free member of society is very, very much in doubt. In fact, I think the big money at this stage is, yes, he will have an appeal, but that the courts will find uh, that there is enough evidence to uphold his conviction. Uh, And as you sort of said there at the beginning, Michael, this is the technicality of all technicalities. Your listeners should remember that this horrendous, uh, uh, you know, the country's most infamous sex killer, um, who groomed his vulnerable victim for years uh, to basically live out his ultimate fantasy, which was to stab a woman to death while having sex, Is all down to the fact that the European Court of Justice has ruled that the Irish police, who did a fantastic job in this case, infringed his right to privacy Mm. by uplifting uh, the data from phones that he had been using to control and to run this debauched and uh, grotesque relationship with his victim. It's an extraordinary turn Mm -hmm. of events. And
4: that that evidence uh, that proved the state's case may be deemed inadmissible by the Court of uh, Appeal. So, uh, on one hand, he may win his appeal on that point, but he, he may not have a sentence overturned.
11: No, he won't, and that's because uh, there is so much other evidence against him, uh, Michael. Um, he has, for example, there is his DNA in um, Elaine's apartment, <coughs> which was found, by the way, <coughs> excuse me, on a mattress which had several stab marks in it. There is a video of him engaging in this uh, role play where he was using a, a retractable blade to stab at. Uh, Elaine O'Hara while having sex that was used in evidence it was found on his computer Um, there is video footage CCTV footage of him him arriving and going to and from Elaine O'Hara's apartment there is a lot of other pieces of evidence uh, that basically when put together um, do form an impenetrable wall and do convince beyond all reason which the original case did as well with a jury that this man was guilty um, it, the, the data at the center of this, of course, is you, made up of 2,600 text messages. And they were the killer for Dwyer um, because he exchanged them with his victim on two unregistered mobile phones that he acquired purely for his contact with her. And they were used by Dwyer over a 17-month period up to the day of her murder in August 2012. And they provide um, the most obscene and grotesque I suppose, narrative or text to this whole, or script to this horrific murder trial, because literally all he talks about is murdering his victim and telling her that he's going to murder her. Uh, It was this bizarre BDSM relationship that he was the master, she was seen as the slave. Um, And it was from those text messages then that the Guardi could ascertain certain aspects and certain characteristics of their, basically helped to identify him uh, and to know parts of his life, which he, de- he didn't then mm. uh, unconsciously corroborated when he was being interviewed by the Gardaí. Uh And then also there was other evidence. Again, it is it, it, it defies logic in a lot of ways that this kind of evidence should be thrown out. But, you know, wherever this master phone went, his, his bogus r- uh, burner phone that he was using for this relationship, wherever it went, his official phone went. In other words, yeah. w- they were together all the time and different parts of the country. Like, you know, it is going to really, if, if Graham Dwyer was going to walk, and I don't think he will, I, I, in fact, I'd be safe bet yeah. to say he won't, but if he was to walk on this, uh, as I say, technicality of all technicalities and the fact that the state breaches privacy, his right to privacy, it really w- is, Michael, an example of where you say that the law is an ass. And it like mm. you have to remember as well when this case came up before the European Court of Justice, uh, thirteen other European countries, EU countries, all joined Ireland uh, <clears throat> in basically making submissions as to why this legislation or why this legislation should stand as in that the state shouldn't have its hands tied behind its back. And Paul Gallagher summarized it, the stark concerns of the governments across the EU. I have this quote here in front of me. He says to them, and this is true, this was our Attorney General telling the European Court of Justice, there are serious crimes we're telling you now that will not be capable of being detected and prosecuted. And the reason is that modern technology has outpaced the means of investigation. There isn't evidence out there that we will not be able to get. Europol, <coughs> I've yeah. said that the member states have told you that. How can it be ignored? So where are we combining a well, core union value?
4: Sorry to cut across you, Paul, but where are we at now? Whatever uh, about uh, this uh, appeal being overturned? You say it, it, it won't, uh, but people uh, were delighted to see the Guardian using this technology, mm-hmm. uh, and it was very clever. And the same with uh, the Joe Riley uh, murder mm-hmm. of Rachel, uh, and that they were able to ch- track people through mobile phones mm-hmm. and all that sort of stuff. Uh, is the law an uh, uh, and can that type of investigation uh, take place now?
11: problem. It's still very much in a grey area, Michael. That's the problem with all this because of the European Court of Justice has thrown everybody asunder and, and overruled it. Like In every case you see coming before the courts, like the, the the Kevin Lunny case, the first line of defence was that again, mobile phone technology was used to track these guys, and which is very legitimate. But the first line of defence in the Special Criminal Court uh, on their behalf was that th- this was an infringement of our privacy, the right to privacy. If you go out and murder somebody, you don't have a right to privacy. You don't have any rights. You have the rights as a defendant to, on, that you're innocent and proven guilty. But this kind of technology is important because you use your phone every day um, <clears throat> and it's more or less like a tracking device. It tells every, whoever picks up your phone where you've been and all of that. And It's the same for, for, for criminals, but it, it, it defies logic that a, a rule like this can supersede the right to life quite literally of innocent people the right to people to police a state to police itself and to protect its citizens so i think what's going to have to happen here it's going to be like a a, one of those patches you get on your iphone they're going to have to patch up the legislation to to codify it to make sense of it Mm. so that the state can because
4: can they do that or is this european law
11: well you see michael there's another side to this as well the Department of Justice, like in so many other cases in the past, have been warned again and again and again that this was coming down the line, and they could have patched it up the law years ago, and they didn't. So now the legislator has to put together laws that basically, I'm I'm advised that they can, and also, like some, I know it's a it's a slam dunk at this stage, but the state the member states are going to have to get together because the implications of this are so. Incredible for law enforcement. Law enforcement are or organized crime, as we know about the Kinnahans and all these guys. They use technology to run their business uh, and to evade justice. You can't tie. Uh, the, the law enforcement community's arm one arm behind its yeah. back
8: well this will
4: so be watched right, very closely Paul amount of time thank you indeed as always thank for you. joining us on the programme much appreciated Paul Williams journalist with the Irish Independent that's our programme for this week God willing we'll see you for our next programme on Monday morning at 9am right here on LMFM good morning bye bye
3: The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now, michael at lmfm.ie.
7: Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than
3: any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay
7: litter.